The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. John's decided to let uh, some of the other parishioners come up and read from the book, so I get to embarrass myself today, so bear with me. Um, I'm reading from John 8, verses 39 through 47. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your own father, the devil, and you carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar, the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any one of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. This is God's word. Thank you, Mike. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pause for a moment here asking for your help today as we take a look at your wonderful, beautiful word. I ask, Lord, that you would uh, speak through me today, that it wouldn't be the words of John, but it would be the words of the Lord Jesus speaking through the scriptures. Help me, Lord, to share it in a way that brings life and freedom and hope, faith, me to share it in a way that is true to the way that you have written it and the way that you want it shared. And Lord, we open our hearts right now that you would bless us, fill us, and give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are with us today for the first time, then you've joined us at the very end of uh, the chapter 8 of the book of John. We have been in chapter 8 for a month now and could probably go a lot longer, but this will be the final uh, talk on uh, chapter 8, and then we'll move on to chapter 9 in a little bit. We're not going to next week because next week we're going to pause for a little bit and talk about the election. We will not talk about politics, okay? Next Sunday is not about politics. Next Sunday is about uh, our responsibility as Christians in our world today as it relates to things like the presidential debate. So you won't see any uh, Democrat or Republican or any party at all. This is, this is God's house. And so uh, he is not any party, okay? He, he rules everything. So it all belongs to God, and, and uh, he's in charge of everything. So um, 
don't worry, okay? We're not going to take any one side. We don't do that at this church. But I think it will be a very timely message, a very powerful message, and you don't want to miss that. That's next Sunday. And then we'll pick up again in chapter 9 and continue on as long as we can throughout the rest of the year. This is an amazing passage, and I know I say that all the time, but it really is incredible chapter full of wonderful truth and power. I hope that, that now, from now on in your life, as you think about John chapter 8, you remember all these talks and you have inside your heart and your mind a fuller understanding of what this chapter is about, a good understanding of what it is and what God is saying in this this wonderful, wonderful chapter. This last section is another assault on Jesus. There have been no less than 10 assaults on Jesus in this one chapter alone. This is a literally one barrage after another against the Lord, and you thought the presidential debate was contentious. This is contentious here. This is intense persecution that Jesus is experiencing here from his own people. So I think there's an awful lot for us to learn and uh, apply to our lives from this text. Have you noticed that it seems like Christianity is always under attack somewhere? And it's just Christianity, right? I mean, when is the last time you heard Buddhists being attacked or discriminated against or persecuted or uh, Hindus or Muslims? You don't hear about it. It's always Christianity. And I saw an article this week in Christianity Today, and they said that there have been 70, and catch this is a big number, 70 million Christians martyred since the resurrection of Christ. 70 million Christians murdered for the name of Christ. And by far, most of those have been in the 20th and 21st centuries. You might think, well, that all happened in the disciples' era, and no, it wasn't. That was relatively small compared to how it is today. And so Christianity is the only religion that experiences this mass persecution. And I think the reason for that is revealed in this text. We learned from Jesus, and we saw earlier that Jesus said that the devil is the ruler of this world. So this, our world system, what we have in America, the devil is ruler over this world system. And we also know that no house divided against itself can stand. So what that will tell us then is that what Jesus is saying in this text here reveals to us, I think, a great deal as to why this persecution exists. Look at verse 44 again. Jesus said, you belong to your father, the devil. So naturally, he is making sure that the persecution that is experienced in Christianity... That's coming from the devil. And, and you can see that here in this phrase, you belong to your father, the devil. Now, I'm not surprised 
that Christianity is under attack all the time because if the devil is the ruler of this world, and he is, as Christ said he was, then we should expect to experience persecution as Christians, right? He's going to come, come against Jesus, and Jesus said that people can be filled with the power of the devil, then those things are going to come at us, and, and we should not be surprised by that. But this statement itself is rather shocking. It is. I mean, he says to them, you are of your father, the devil. Now, that's a pretty powerful in your face type of a statement. Jesus is telling these new disciples, right? Remember verse 30, these new disciples here, that's what he's talking to. And he's saying to them the most vile thing he could ever say to a person. Can you say worse? <laughs> I mean, the Judas is bad. Maybe you could say you're like Judas Iscariot, but he goes even, wor even worse. You are the devil. I don't think you could say anything worse. But this isn't the last time that Jesus said it. It's not the first time he said it. If you look ahead in chapter 23 of Matthew, it says, listen to this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Why does Jesus say these things? Why does he call out these religious leaders and sort of egg them on, you know? He's poking them and prodding them and attacking them and saying inflammatory statements. You know, if he was trying to be their friend, he wouldn't, wouldn't say, you are of the devil. I don't think that would be a good strategy for making friends. Why does he say, you are of your father the devil? Why does he say to them, you're a bunch of liars and murderers? And the short answer to those questions is because he loves them. Now, that may not be what you thought. You, have, you can see if, you've, if you have any experience with the New Testament and the Gospels, you can see that Jesus is continually speaking harshly to these religious leaders. Why is he doing it? I think because he loves them. And so you're thinking to yourself, well, if that's love, then I would rather not have it. <laughs> but let me explain this. I think a very simple analogy explains why this is the case. If you had someone in your life that you loved dearly, this person is the most wonderful, precious person in your whole life. You love them with your whole heart, and they have cancer. And somehow, some way, you are given the cure for their cancer. You have it. I mean, let's just assume it's a, it's a little vial of medicine. They drink this, cancer gone. So naturally, what you do is you go right to that person and you say, hey, I've got the cure. It'll cure all of your cancer. And they say back to you, oh, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't have the right label. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. Thanks anyway. Very, very nice of you. To, thanks anyway. No, no thanks. I don't want it. 
Would you just say, oh, okay, and then just walk away? No, you love this person, right? You would try another strategy. You say, how can I, how can I get this through to them? And so then you'd come again, and maybe you would say it a little bit more forceful this time. You would, you would say, come on, you've got to do this. And you would think of anything you could say to possibly get their attention and get them to take this. In fact, I think if you really love them, you would go so far as to grab them, wrestle them to the floor, and force it down their throat, right? I would. I absolutely would. To save their life. I think that's what's going on here. I think that's what Jesus is doing. He is doing anything he can to get through to the Pharisees because he loves them. He loves them just as much as he loves the sinners and the tax collectors. He loves those religious leaders and wants them to come to the knowledge of the truth. And I think that I can back that up further as we look through this text. So just hold on to that idea. These are not Jesus' enemies. And that's why he never gives up. He's always at it with these religious leaders. As we know in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love never, never, never fails, never gives up, never quits. Jesus loves them. And these men are not his enemy. Or are they? He certainly talks to them like they're an enemy, right? But the right answer to that is they are not his enemy and they are his enemy. They are not his enemy and they are his enemy. Let me explain. The Apostle Paul taught in Ephesians 6 that we as Christians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and rulers of darkness in high places. So Paul is saying, listen, your warfare, your battle, your enemy is the devil and his demons. And that's who you're really facing. But we also know, right? We know from James chapter 4. If you read it this morning, right? You In your, your 20-minute mornings, you read James 4 this morning. And in verse 4, he says this. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So these Pharisees, they are not his enemy, the devil is, and they are also his enemy in how they love their system, they love the world, and they are against Jesus. Their response to his rebuke is, is really fascinating and shocking. This is the Son of God. By now, he has done hundreds and hundreds of miracles. His teaching is like no one has ever heard before. He's an incredible individual by just regular standards. And so he offers them this great offer, and their answer to that offer is turning his rebuke into rebuke against him. And so they say to Jesus, we're not demon-possessed. You are. We don't have a, we're not of the father of the devil. You are. You're, you're the devil's child, son. And so 
rather than falling at their feet and declaring their sin and their, their unworthiness and to worship Jesus as all of us would do. If Jesus came into our midst, we would immediately fall and worship him. And so instead of worshiping Jesus, they close up their heart really tight and they rebel against him. In this, we see a pattern. A pattern emerges, and you see it over and over, I think at least three times in this, just this section here. You see it through all, all through chapter 8. But in this section, you see a pattern emerge. It looks like this. These religious leaders, they attack Jesus. They try to trip him up, or they try to make a trap, or they attack him in some way, like telling him he's of the devil. And then Jesus responds, responds to that attack with the truth. He tells them the truth, and then he follows that up with an invitation to receive grace and mercy. And that pattern repeats over and over and over. You see it all the time with Jesus, that they rebuke him, they attack him, he responds with truth, and then he offers grace and mercy. And we talked about grace and mercy a couple weeks ago. Yesterday, I received the most incredible mercy from God. It was absolutely amazing. I'll tell you about it sometime. <laughs> so let's look at this first set here. The first set is in verses 48 through 51. So verse 48, here is the attack. You're a Samaritan and demon-possessed. Now, Calling a Jewish man a Samaritan was about the worst thing you could say, the worst insult that there was. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They thought they were uh, compromisers. They were uh, betrayers. They were rotten. They hated the Samaritans. So to call Jesus a Samaritan is really the most rudest thing they could come up with, just telling him, saying something horrible about him. And so he responds to that, verse 49. Here's the truth. He responds to that with truth. He says, I, have, I do not have a demon. I am not demon-possessed. I honor God the Father, and in dishonoring me, you dishonor him. So he tells them the truth to their response. They say he's of the devil. He tells them the truth. Then... He follows it up with grace. Verse 51. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. So there's an opportunity of mercy and grace just laid right out in front of them. All they have to do is take it. If you come to me, if you obey me and follow me, you will never taste death. You will have eternal life with me in heaven. What a... What an amazing offer. Who wouldn't take that? Who would turn that down? What an incredible offer of mercy and grace and forgiveness to an angry, hate-filled, rotten group of men. Here's that wonderful word again, that word that I love so much that we cherish at Canyon Ridge, did you see it there in verse 51? Whoever, anyone, everyone. It's part of our vision statement, right? 
Anyone can explore faith and grow at their own pace. Everyone. And Jesus says that here as well. This is a wonderful, wonderful offer of grace. And then the pattern repeats again. Look at verse 52. Verse 52, here's the attack. We know that you are demon-possessed. In a way, I think what they're saying is, who do you think you are telling us what the truth is, what God thinks and what God believes? We know the truth. You don't know the truth. Who do you think you are? And so Jesus responds with the truth. Verse 54. You don't know the Father because of the way you treat me. You don't know him, but I know him. I know the Father, and I obey his word. That's the truth. He responds to their attack with the truth. He states the truth to them. And then in verse 56, we see his offer of grace. He says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Your joy will be complete in me as Abraham's was. So they reject his gracious offer, and then the whole thing crumbles down in this incredible statement from Jesus. You see the pattern? We've gone through it once, we've gone through it twice, and then you come to verse 58. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, you cannot miss this. This is, for the very first time in the Gospels, this is the most straight-up declaration of deity about Jesus you will ever find. This right here. It's no, there is nothing greater than this one. This is a straight-up claim to be God right here. And I think to see that, to understand that, you've got to go into the Old Testament a little bit to understand what he's actually saying. They obviously knew exactly what he was saying by their response to that, right? You look at the last verse, what does it say? It says they immediately picked up stones and they were going to murder him. They were going to kill him immediately at his response. So no other place in the Gospels does Jesus so clearly, completely reveal his divinity than right here in John chapter 8. So what does he mean by this, I am? Because he doesn't say I was, right? When Abraham was, I was before. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I am, which is a little bit odd. Why does he say it like that? Well, this was the name for God that the Jews would never say out loud, the I am. It is offensive, and they were incredibly offended with this intense reaction you know, I was thinking about this this week. Has there ever been a time in my life where somebody said something to me that was so offensive that I just wanted to murder them on the spot? And I couldn't come up with any. 
Thank God. <laughs> I couldn't remember any. I mean, some people have said some pretty vile things to me over the years. But nobody has said anything that I just wanted to pull out a gun and shoot them. And yet, that's the reaction that Jesus gets here. And that's, that's pretty intense. They immediately wanted to kill him. Why were they so cut to the quick? Why were they so incensed at this? Well, you have to look at some of the history. Jesus was calling himself God by saying, I am. You have to go back to Exodus chapter 3. Old Testament starts with Genesis, goes to Exodus. And in the book of Exodus chapter 3, we have... Moses, who's tending to his father-in-law's flock of sheep and animals, and he sees a bush light on fire, which was not uncommon, but this particular bush wasn't burning up. It wasn't being burned up. It was just on fire. And so this was on Mount Sinai. And he walks over to this bush to investigate. And verse 14 of Exodus 3, God spoke to Moses out of the bush. He says, I am who I am. Moses asked the bush as God spoke. He said, well, if you're going to send me into Egypt, who do I say your name is? Who do I tell them has sent me? And this is his response. He says, I am who I am. So God is saying to Moses, this is my name. This is who I am. I am that I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Well, what does that mean? What does I am mean. I mean, think about your name. Your name describes you. It says who you are, right? You're, when I say I'm John, that says a lot about me. It says who I am and a lot of things. And so God is coming up with a name, the most infinite, most incredible, the most beautiful, wonderful, powerful being in all of the universe and beyond. What kind of a name does he come up with? And so his name is I am. I am means that I have always been and I always will be. I have been and I will always be. I was not created. I have no beginning and no end. I am everywhere at all times throughout all of eternity. I am all-powerful. There is no power greater than me in the universe. Nothing is greater than I am. I am is all-knowing. If there is anything to know and all knowledge and anything that can be known, it is already known in the I am. And as I said, the Jews considered this Hebrew form of the name of God to be so holy that nobody would speak it out loud. They would substitute it with another Hebrew name for God. And this is what Jesus is telling them. He's saying to them, I am. 
And rather than bowing low and worshiping Jesus as he reveals this to them, they want to murder him. This message that Moses received from God had a specific purpose. He was supposed to take that message to the Israelites and to the Egyptians. The Egyptians had the whole nation in slavery. They were being killed and mistreated and abused. For all the things that that word slavery entails, that was happening to the people of God, the nation of Israel. Of Egypt. And so God sent plagues on the nation of Egypt, 10 of them, 10 plagues to convince these people to release God's people and let them be free. And Moses would be their leader. And so they go through nine plagues and then they have the last one, which was the worst by far. Absolutely by far the worst plague came number 10. Number 10, as you remember, is the death of every firstborn male in the household. And so if you think about that, the firstborn male, that would be literally, almost nearly, every single family in the entire nation had somebody die in their sleep that night. Didn't wake up. And the Bible tells us there was such screaming and crying and wailing from the entire nation that it moved on Pharaoh's heart to let them go. God said to Moses, now this plague, I don't want this plague to touch you. So this is what you've got to do. You must kill the best, most pure lamb that you have. You kill the lamb, and you take the blood of that lamb, and you, you put it on the doorposts over your home, over your front door. You sprinkle that blood over your front door, and when the death angel comes over your home, he will see the blood of the lamb there and pass over. And that's exactly what happened. So that night, the Israelites followed that, that teaching. They did what Moses said. When the death angel came, every Israelite home he passed over, and only the Egyptians were killed that night. And after all of this happened, God said to Moses, I want you to now, now that you are set free, I want you to celebrate this one night. Call it Passover. A Passover celebration, you'll... you'll Celebrate this every single year. Every single year you will celebrate Passover to remember that the death angel passed over your home and you didn't die. The price of their freedom was paid by the blood of the lamb. The sacrificial lamb saved them. Now when Jesus made this statement, it was about six months away from Passover. It hasn't happened yet. We know because we just came out of the Feast of Booths. But when Jesus met with his disciples six months later in the upper room, it was for Passover, right? So now you understand where that came from. They were celebrating Passover that night. 
And then the next day, Jesus would go to the cross, and then on Sunday, he would rise from the dead. We call that Easter. So what is happening here in John chapter 8 that is so absolutely incredible that you cannot miss? You've got to see this. What Jesus is doing is he's taking everything that happened in the Old Testament and he's pulling all of that together and then he's fulfilling it in himself. Because we know that Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. We call him the lamb of God. Why do we call Jesus the lamb of God? You remember chapter one, John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus was fulfilling the entire Old Testament right here in front of them, and they didn't even know it. They had no idea what's going on. The I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom you call your father, I am his God. And that's what they heard him say, and that's what they thought was blasphemy. In their minds, no man can claim that. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. Jesus is sewing up history. He's wrapping it up. 8,000 years of history are being fulfilled in his life. Jesus supplied the blood for the death angel on the cross. Jesus purchased our freedom with his blood so that none of our children would have to die, that we don't have to die. Nobody has to die. Jesus died. He was the sacrificial lamb. He was the last one. He fulfilled all of the prophecy. He was the lamb of God. And so he took our penalty so we can be free and no longer in slavery, but not slavery like our ancestors, slavery to sin, as we saw last week, right? Remember Jesus said, you, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. He's talking about freedom from sin. When Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished, what was he saying? He was saying, I've finished the Old Testament for you. I've summed it up. It's complete. Salvation is complete in me. There is no longer any reason to shed blood of animals or people. My sacrifice has done it all. It's finished. Salvation for mankind is complete. When you and I face physical death and we are in Christ, he is our savior. We are under his blood and we are facing death. We have absolutely nothing to fear. No fear at all. Because we know that to be dead is to be present with Christ. So when we die, we don't go down into the grave. We don't go down to hell. We don't see angels. You know, any, none of that happens. The very second your heart stops beating, you're before the Lord Jesus. And you're right there in front of him, in his presence. 
And at that moment, you are filled with all of his love and all of his joy. And it's joy and love and, and the most incredible feelings you've ever felt in your whole life. And at that moment, you, you get it. You finally get it and you say, I understand now. I know that all that suffering was worth it. It was all worth it. I would go back a thousand times and suffer a thousand worse ways for this. It's worth it to be here with Jesus. Oh, how wonderful that is. Do you st- are you starting to see what an amazing statement this was? He wasn't just having a conversation with these guys. He was fulfilling the plan of God. And their response was to murder him. You know, I think there was another response. I don't know, because the Bible doesn't say, okay, so I'm drifting off into John land right now. (laughs) But I don't think it's a stretch to think that when Jesus said to them, I am, thousands and thousands of hosts of heaven all rejoiced. And the angels cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God. They worshiped. They celebrated that salvation was coming to man. I think that's what happened. Again, I don't know. It's not in the Bible. It's just my own. Because I also think there's golf in heaven. Because people talk about fields of green. I don't know. Why do the angels shout, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty? Because Jesus claimed his deity that day. Jesus said, here I am, I'm God. He was saying that he was equal to the Father God. That he was there in heaven when Abraham was born. And anytime anyone reads this or they hear about something like this or they're in a service like this, you have two responses to this. And there are only two. People try to add a third, but you cannot. Jesus will not allow that. He will only allow one of two responses. And these men here, these Jewish men, they had one response. It was to reject We hate you for saying that. We hate you to the point where we want to kill you. And that is how some people feel about Jesus or Christianity. Okay? And maybe you've met some of them. The other response is worship. It's to fall down at your feet, at his feet, and lift up your hands and declare his majesty and to worship him and thank him over and over and over and say, oh God, I long to be able to thank you throughout all eternity for loving me and dying for me and removing my sin. 
Worship is the immediate response. And some people want to add in a third, but you can't. A third response, which some people want, is, well, it doesn't matter. Okay, it's good for you. It's, not, it's just not for me. You know, I'm fine. You're Christian. Great. I, I'm, I'm good. I don't hate Jesus. It's just not for me. Jesus doesn't allow that one. That doesn't, that doesn't exist for him. You have that kind of attitude, you're in the hate group. Unfortunately, you end up in that group. Well, how can that be? Because you either say yes to Jesus or you say no. Nobody says maybe. Maybe is no if you die saying maybe. It's yes or no. What I love about it is that he will never give up on any of us. And for some people, he will use extreme measures to get your attention. Because he loves you. He loves you so much. And maybe you look back on your life and you go, wow, I, I can see the Lord was really trying to get a hold of my heart. I am really a thick skull. And others get it easy. I, I went the hard road. But thank God you, you made it. And he never gave up on you along the way, and we won't either. Because love never gives up. So I think for us today here, as we hear this, the only right response is worship. And so I'd like you to stand up with me. And let me just say this. If you've not yet come to that place where you say, I believe, that's okay. That's totally okay. You can still stand and you can still join us. Um, and you get to see what it's like for us Christians. Um, gives you something to consider for yourself. But I think it would be good for us to stand and to just close this service out today with the right response he should have gotten from his own people. His own people rejected him, but we won't. Are you with me on that? Yeah. We won't. We will worship him for who he is, and we want it known throughout Pierce County that that's what's going on here, that we worship Jesus for who he is. So uh, let me pray. Worship team come up, and or not all of them, just a Let's do a little acoustic worship. I'm not going to go for hours, okay? So you're still going to make the football game tonight. <laughs> Which we will win, by the way, because every time the Seahawks wear the gray, they're undefeated. And they're wearing the gray today. So we're going to win. It's a very uh, deep logic that I use on these things. <laughs> calculated carefully so will you join me in worshiping Jesus to how he deserves would you just close your eyes and express to him your gratitude for salvation for loving you for forgiving you for never giving up on you when everybody else gave up on you and everybody else threw in the towel Jesus stayed with you
And he kept saying over and over, I love you. Father, we come before you this morning to finish off this service with just a, just a short worship song to say we're grateful. Thank you, God, for your love, which is so amazing. Thank you for your mercy, as I needed it so bad. I was lost in my sins and my stubborn, rebellious ways. I was completely lost. But you saved me from myself. You saved me from the judgment I deserved. And I'm so grateful, Father. I want to spend the rest of my life showing you that gratitude. And I want to, throughout eternity, share my gratitude with you for what you have done for me. We worship you, Lord. And we worship you today in the glory of your majesty. Oh, oh, oh. 